Thank you so much, Steve, sharing your gift with us. Well, we've been doing a series on stewardship, and we've looked at uh, several things. This morning, we're going to talk about financial stewardship, and before we do, I want to say a couple of things up front. Uh, first, I've been a part of this church family for almost 30 years now, and so when I think about that, that means there have been in excess of about 1,500 sermons preached from this pulpit during that time. And I can count on one hand the number of servants that I can remember speaking specifically to the issue of financial stewardship. I know I've been doing this as a teaching pastor now for about seven years, and I don't think I have ever addressed the topic personally. Now, I can speak for myself as to why that's the case. There's really a couple of reasons. The first one is this. I'm chicken. I uh, know that... Uh, Pastors and churches in general have a bad reputation when it comes to this topic. In fact, Terry sent me a, a picture. She was at Barnes & Noble this week, and uh, it was Success Magazine. And on the front cover of that magazine was a picture of Joel Olstein. And I thought, man, I don't want to be that guy. And so I'm scared to uh, approach a topic because I don't want you to have the wrong impression of what we're trying to speak to here. Kind of reminds me of the two guys that were stranded on a, an island. They had a shipwreck and ended up on this deserted island. And one of them begins to panic. And he says, look, we're in big trouble. We don't have food, supplies. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's going to find us. And his friend was much more relaxed. He turned to him and he says, look, don't worry. I make a six-figure salary. I tithe regularly. Trust me, my pastor's going to find us. If it makes you feel any better, I have no idea what anybody in this church gives at any time, all right? So, but if I'm honest, I think I have had a little bit of fear when it comes to speaking to this topic. But there's another reason that contributes to my angst, and that is I'm a little bit insecure. Uh, because when it comes to financial stewardship, I believe this is an area I'm still growing and learning in myself. And so anything I have to offer you this morning is not out of expertise. You're not looking at a star graduate from Dave Ramsey's financial university. This is somebody who's learning and growing just like you. And, and so I, too, want to be more faithful as a financial steward. That being said, fear and insecurity are terrible reasons not to address this topic. Especially when the Bible has so much to say about it. In recent weeks, you've heard me talk about how much Jesus loves to tell parables, right? He loves to tell parables, a big part of his ministry. What might surprise you is that 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus told had to do with money, material possessions. Not only that, if you look at the scope of the Bible as a whole, there are about 700 passages that speak about love. About 500 that speak about prayer, and that really probably surprises no one, right? Because those are important topics in Scripture. But it might surprise you to know that there are over 2,000 verses that speak to the topic of money and material possessions. So even though it may not be a common sermon topic here at Melanie Park Church, it would be wrong for us to avoid it altogether. Instead, we need to ask, what is the big deal? about financial stewardship from from God's perspective why is it so important that's an important question there's another 
point that I want to make, though, as it relates to this topic, and it has to do with timing. As many of you know, there have been uh, years in recent history where we at Melanie Park have had some concern about our ability to cover our costs. You saw that during the year, even this year, where there was a deficit. And so, as Jeff had mentioned, we have gone to great lengths to really trim budget and cut costs and do things as much as we can. In recent years, we've even decided not to put money in savings because, quite literally, we didn't have money to save. And so we wanted to be real diligent with that. But, but with that in mind, I want you to know that as much as we've tried to, to keep you informed so that you understand where we are and we want to be good in communicating that information, there has been a very purposeful decision to never, ever preach on giving in the midst of a crisis. Now, some may agree or disagree with that, but that has been a purposeful decision made by the elders. And as you've heard from Jeff's report, God has been so faithful to us, and, and he has supplied us over and beyond what we need. So when I speak to this topic this morning, I'm not speaking in the midst of a crisis. There's nothing that we have to worry about. We're, there's no strings attached to anything I have to say this morning. Because we can rejoice in God's faithfulness and be able to consider what it means to be a good financial steward. Because apparently, it's really important from God's perspective with the number of times that it is addressed in His inspired word. And we want to understand this morning, why is it so important? What's the big deal? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we do, let's pray together. Father, forgive us if we have um, in any way diminished something that is very important in your eyes or, or made it out to be something different than what you intended it to be. I would ask this morning, as we look at your word, that we would see it from your perspective, that we would understand your heart towards this issue and what it reveals about our heart and its relationship with you. So, God, just put us at ease. May we rejoice in your faithful provision and see what you have to say about what it means to be a good steward of our finances. This is our prayer. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, to begin with, as many of you know, I enjoy woodworking. I don't do it nearly as much as I would like to or I used to, but when I have the chance, I do enjoy doing a little woodworking. Most of the stuff I do is just stuff for our own house. I do custom orders for my wife. That's kind of my main project list, right? And we like that because anytime I create something, it's just a little bit different than what we could go buy on our own. When I create it, it's uniquely ours, right? Well, with that in mind, I want you to turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning, so just get your fingers warm and be ready to turn. We'll look at them together. Psalm 24, and we're going to begin in verse 1. It says this, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. If creation establishes ownership, then God owns everything. Because he created everything. The earth and all it contains, the world and all 
who dwell on it. He founded it. He created it. And as the creator, he is the only rightful owner of all that exists. Now, that's incredibly important when we enter into this topic of financial stewardship. Because although we might consider it to be our hard-earned money, the truth of the matter is, it's not our money. The earth and all it contains, the world and all who dwell on it, belong to its creator, God alone. So before we decide what to do with our money, we need to first understand it's not our money. The earth and all it contains belongs to God. There is several in Scripture, there are several in Scripture who I think understood that perspective. David is one of those, King David. I think he grew to understand that perspective in his life and, and the leadership as king. Towards the end of his life, he's preparing for the building of the temple, a, a privilege that he won't have the opportunity to participate in personally, but his son Solomon will. And in preparation for this, he's getting everything in order. And I want us to, to look at that together. So if you will, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. So go left from Psalms. If you've gone to Kings, you've gone too far. So 1 Chronicles is where I want us to look. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. So it's the last chapter of 1 Chronicles. As we read this passage, I want you to notice that, that David's going to talk about uh, things have been acquired and then presented for the building of the temple. And so listen to what he says beginning in verse 1. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the, bronze, the iron for the things of iron. It goes on to describe the wood and, and the stones. Then in verse 3 he says, Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God over and beyond all that I've already provided. And then he goes on to describe those gifts. And then at the, in verse 5 he says, Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? As you hear that passage, I think there are two sources of, uh, of giving that David speaks to. The, the, the first is, are things that he has acquired over time, very likely things collected from taxes or, or spoils of war. So in one sense, those things that have been surrendered to the kingdom, he then surrenders for the building of this temple, the, the house of God. But then he goes on to say over and beyond that, he gives from his own personal wealth, his own personal bank account, so to speak. And then he looks to the people and he says, and I encourage you to do the same. But look at how he communicates it. At the end of verse 5 again, he says, Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Notice David didn't ask for anybody's money. He, he didn't say, Who then this day is willing to donate to this most important building project? That's not what he said. He said, who's willing to, to consecrate himself? You see, their contribution is simply an acknowledgement of God's ultimate ownership. 
When they surrender their resources, they essentially are surrendering themselves. That's what consecration means. It's a a surrendering of self. It's a a giving up of something and an acknowledgement of who ultimately is the true owner and ruler of it all. So it didn't have anything to do with giving money. It had to do with giving yourself, giving your heart. David makes that explicit. This is a beautiful passage. I want you to listen closely. All the people have gathered. They have rejoiced in the, the giving of gifts for this most important project of building the the house of God, the temple. And listen to what he says beginning in verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heaven And on the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as, as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you. And from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants. All of our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. And and there is no hope in this world. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand. And it all belongs to you. Isn't it interesting that David identifies himself and his people as sojourners, as tenants. Those are terms used to describe people who exist because of the benevolence of an owner. Somebody who provides them a place to live, a a land that belongs to him, provisions for their families. David says, anything that we give to you is out of the abundance of ultimately what we received from you. In our terms, we might say we're just renters in a world that you own. And it all belongs to you. By surrendering their resources, they are exalting God as the ultimate provider. And that's what turned their offering into worship. The the recognition that God is the creator and it ultimately belongs to him. That he is the provider and it ultimately came from him. And that's why they could rejoice with a heart of sincere worship. But God is much more than just a rightful owner. What we see in Scripture is He is the greatest giver of all. And I want us to look at a passage in Corinthians. But before we do, I want to remind you of what we talked about when we looked at Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And you'll remember that the church in Corinth was a fairly wealthy congregation, wasn't it? Fairly affluent society in Corinth. And as was custom, uh, Corinth, like many of the other churches, had made a pledge, kind of like a faith promise. We were talking about this morning. They made a faith promise to Paul 
as he was collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem were, who were under great persecution and under great need. And we know from Paul's missionary journeys that he would take up that collection as he made his way back to Jerusalem to give it to the believers in Jerusalem. And, and the church in Corinth said, we want to be a part of that. The problem is, is that even though they had made a verbal commitment, nobody was moved to action. Nobody actually uh, made good on their faith promise. And so what I want you to see is how Paul uses the gospel to instruct the Corinthians on giving. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. So consider the context of what I just told you, and let's read this together. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is how Paul is going to instruct the Corinthians on giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. He says, although Jesus was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Now, it's important to understand that, that Paul is not speaking about economic poverty. We understand that Jesus didn't have a lot of money. There was no place to lie his head, right? He moved from one place to the next. There were those close to his ministry that helped support that effort. But economic poverty is not what Paul has in mind here. Instead, I think it's more consistent with what he spoke to the Philippians when he said that when he was poor by emptying himself taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. You remember he told the Colossians that all of every, everything has been created by him and for him. Everything that exists was created by Jesus and for Jesus. So with that in mind, we know that he is the creator, the ruler of all that exists, the rightful owner. And yet he, as the rightful owner and ruler of all, willingly became a servant. He emptied himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So listen to me clearly. The poverty of Jesus is seen when he takes the debt of our sin and bears the penalty on the cross. It's that poverty that Paul has in mind. It's that poverty by which we ultimately become rich with an eternal inheritance of eternal life. That's what Paul has in mind. And he's looking at the Corinthian and he's saying, with that grace which you know, you too do the same. You see, he's not talking about earthly wealth or earthly possessions. What he's talking about is the inheritance that we have. The scripture tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ. And so what that means is that everything that belongs to him is credited to you. Put into your bank account, if you want to use those terms. He who knew no sin became sin 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. His righteousness credited to our account. He took our debt and made us rich in eternal life. So Paul is telling the Corinthians, you know the grace of God. How he surrendered what was rightly his as a vivid expression of his love for you. And that example should be the very heart in your giving as well. Notice that Paul doesn't play on their emotions by showing them pictures of needy children in Jerusalem or speaking to the suffering that they're going through or even reminding them about the pledge, the faith promise that they had made. Why is that? Why didn't he bring those things up? Why speak to it from the context of the gospel? Here's why I believe that's the case. He didn't want them to be moved by what they could do to help others in need, as if they were the benefactor and the origin of that blessing. He didn't want them to leverage their money for the kingdom. It's not their money. That's the prideful of opinion of a wealthy people. And that's not the perspective that we need to have. Instead, giving is an act of worship. It's exalting God as the ultimate giver. And our generosity is a reflection of our gratitude for that most gracious gift that we've received. We're not to be moved by what we can do for others. We're to be moved because of what God has ultimately done for us. We want to serve the needs of others out of obedience to God. Isn't that the example of Christ? And, And so Paul is giving them this example and is saying, that's the heart behind your gift. That's why financial stewardship has so much to say about our spiritual integrity, where we are in our hearts. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is a very familiar passage where Jesus is speaking about money, one of the many examples in Scripture. And I want us to look at this together. Uh, beginning in Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus, speaking uh, to his disciples and others, says in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in, in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be i think as we listen to this passage we look at it we can see the first part's pretty straightforward isn't it don't store up treasures on earth we we all understand the absence of security and earthly treasures don't we that's here today gone tomorrow most of it out of our control we won't find satisfaction in material possessions we don't want to put our hope in money why because it often disappoints it's a it's a false hope it's like a mirage in the desert promising great things but turning out to be completely empty but even if money does give you what you want okay some of you may be thinking well if i had this i can get this and then life would be better so let's just say for the sake of conversation money does give you what you want but now you've got another problem you've got to protect the source of your happiness 
And it, what ends up happening is you get robbed by the anxiety to protect what ultimately you believe gives you hope. That's the thief. Protecting what will only promise to disappoint. But what about that second part? What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? What is that about? Is Jesus talking about some heavenly bank account? Is it like an eternal retirement fund? So that some of our contributions here are somehow credited to us in the heavenly realms? Is that what that means? I think we have to be careful about how we look at that passage. Kind of like saving up for a new car or a new house. We have the idea that the longer we save, the more we save, the nicer the car, the bigger the house. Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Our earthly contributions somehow have an impact on our heavenly experience? I don't think so at all. Because I think we need to consider what we just talked about. And let me ask you this. Can you add to the riches of what you've received in Christ? Is there something more than an eternal inheritance of everlasting joy in the presence of God, our Creator? Can, can you one-up that? Do you add to that? I don't think so. I think Jesus is trying to make the point that the source of our treasure is ultimately the source of our hope. And when we're storing up treasures in heaven, all we're saying is, that's what I'm living for. That's where my hope is found. That's where everything my heart desires is ultimately fulfilled. That's what I'm believing. There's a passage in 1 Peter. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read this to you that I think captures what's being communicated. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what, what he says here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You don't earn your treasure in heaven. You inherit it by faith. Laying up treasure is the same as putting your hope in heaven where that treasure is ultimately found. I feel confident that when we stand before God and look into the face of our Savior, <laughs> nobody's going to give a lick about any money or material possessions because they will have what all their hearts desire. I think Jesus will go on in this passage in Matthew to help make that point. So if you will, look at verse 22 of, of that passage in Matthew chapter 6. He goes on and says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We know that our 
eyes, our body is directed by our vision, by what we see. And when our eyes are clear, it, it in a sense, illuminates our path. It gives us guidance and, and direction. We also know that if our eyes are bad and all we see is darkness, now we have no idea where to go. And we end up lost and misdirected. And I think what he's trying to communicate here is the treasure works very much the same way. Good treasure is a, a hope that illuminates our path. Bad treasure will lead us astray. Heavenly treasure has an eternal security. Earthly treasure has a false hope. That's why you can't serve both God and money. There's a, a divided loyalty. If God is the source of your hope, you serve Him. And money and material possessions are used in a way that carries out that purpose. But if treasure is where your hope is found, then that's where your security and purpose will ultimately be identified. In that case, you don't own your money. Your money owns you. I think at the end of the day, our attitude towards giving really ultimately determines who we serve. A giving heart exalts God as the ultimate giver. He's the greatest giver of all. And our generosity ultimately is a reflection of our gratitude. It puts the gospel on display. It follows the example of what we see in Christ. And so with that in mind, I'm not going to give you 10 steps to financial stewardship. <laughs> what I want to do is give you three biblical principles that I believe help keep our heart in check when it comes to this topic of financial stewardship. So let's look at these together. First one is this. Give your best, not what's left. Give your best, not what's left. There's a passage in Proverbs. You can turn there if you want to. If not, I'll just read it to you. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, if you want to write it down. And listen to what it says. It says, honor the Lord from your wealth. And from the first of all your produce. You see, I believe first fruits is a principle established by God among his people to remind us that it all belongs to him. Because if it's my money, I'm going to start with me. And once my needs are met, if I have any left over, if I happen to remember, then I'll give out of my surplus. But if it's God's money, then I'll start with him. I'll look to him on what he would desire for his purposes because it belongs to him in the first place. In our day and age, we might call it a tithe. Often we give it a percentage and consider it to be acceptable to give 10%. But here's something I believe in Scripture is, is, is this. God's really not concerned about a percentage. He's not concerned about an amount. He's mostly concerned about your heart. Not what you give but why you give. God wants to see the gospel revealed in your giving. He wants to see a, a, a surrender of resources as an expression of love, just as our Savior emptied himself and became poor so that we might be rich. So we should give first, not what's left. The second thing is this, give sacrificially not expendable. I do want you to turn to this passage. Turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. 
This again is a familiar passage, another one of those examples that speaks of financial stewardship. So Mark chapter 12, verse 41 says this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing, this is Jesus, observing how people were putting money into the treasury. And many of the rich people were putting in large sums. A poor woman came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to one penny. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman put in more than all the contributions to the treasury combined. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. But in all she owned, all she had lived on. See the gospel there? Out of her poverty, out of her poverty she gave, not out of her excess. The wealthy gave a donation. The poor widow woman gave worship. Because worship involved sacrifice. You may remember that passage in 1 Chronicles where David wants to make an altar in order to give a sacrifice. And he goes to the person who owns the land and he says, I would like to have this land in order to make a sacrifice, uh, to build an altar and make a sacrifice. The, the man knows who he is and says, you're the king. Uh, I'm going to give you this land. And David says, no, I will not make a sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. Because it is not worship if there is no sacrifice. And so give sacrificially. Give abundantly. So we don't give out of the excess that we have to help God. That really doesn't exalt God. That helps us feel better. We want to give instead sacrificially to put us in a place of dependence, surrendering our resources, trusting that he is faithful to provide. We want to be in his debt. <laughs> we won't, don't want to put him into ours. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. And yet he gives so freely and so faithfully, and we can trust him. So give first, give sacrificially, and then lastly, give cheerfully. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, beginning in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think God loves a cheerful giver is because a cheerful giver gets it. They understand that the gospel is revealed in their giving. They look at giving as an expression of, of love. They remember the words of Jesus. Remember when he, we talked about this in Luke 7 when he told them, he who has forgiven, been forgiven much loves much. Well, that, that love of that woman who anointed his feet, it was extravagant, wasn't it? That's what made the Pharisees and religious leaders kind of look down on it. This is, this is too much. And she's thinking, it's not enough. It's extravagant. It's bountiful. Not to make a show, but to honor God. 
not earning favor, but as an expression of God's grace, exalting Him as the greatest giver of all. I think cheerful giving is one of those litmus tests, tests that, that our heart's in the right place. Because if we're not cheerful, there may be something wrong with our heart and how we give. So we want to give cheerfully. You know, financial is, stewardship is so important because ultimately it tells us where our hope lies. It reveals the spiritual condition of our heart. And I think most importantly, it puts the gospel on display. Because the one who was so rich as the ruler and creator of all things became poor for our sakes. So that in our spiritual poverty, carrying that debt of sin which we could never repay, he took that upon himself in order that we may be made rich, eternal. Nothing we can add to because it is full and complete in Christ. Amen? So, in one sense, I hope I didn't disappoint you. I went in this morning to the library, and there are some great books by some great authors about financial stewardship and, and good practical ways to be a good steward. But what I hope to give you this morning is the foundation, the heart behind what this topic is all about. Because if that's not right, it doesn't matter how well you balance your checkbook. Okay? We want to really be able to see what financial stewardship means when it comes to a reflection of what's happening in our heart. And what we feel about God is the ruler and owner of all. So let me pray for us. And then Carrie's going to come up. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to look at your word. To understand, I hope, uh, from a biblical perspective, what your perspective is on this topic. I think we probably uh, can fault on, on either extreme where we don't give it enough attention and sometimes maybe too much. And yet we want to understand what your heart is so that we can be faithful to reflect that in our heart as well. Father, help us, if nothing else, to take home that picture of you becoming poor for our sake so that we might be rich. So that anything that we ever give and contribute to the work of your ministry here on earth is out of gratitude for the salvation eternal inheritance that we have made complete and protected by you in the heavenly realms. That's where our hope is found. Father, we entrust this to you as our loving Savior. Amen.